It's been described as a crisis. It is being described as an emergency. It is being described as a threat to our economy. Yes, folks, I am referring to the housing crisis. Now, the housing crisis, particularly in today's episode, I'm referring to the Irish market. But many of the issues that we're talking about here apply to the UK market as well. As I was researching this episode, I did notice a lot of the same kind of things popping up and down. So if you're listening in from the UK and you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is an Irish episode, it's actually going to cover a lot of the issues that, uh, and it could be useful for whichever uh, country you live in, really. It is all about solving the housing crisis, whichever country you happen to be in. Now, this First of all, let's ask the question, like, can this actually be fixed? Is this possible? Is it actually possible to fix the housing crisis? What are the many solutions that are out there? What are the solutions that will actually work? There are plenty of popular kind of polls out there and stuff like that that are making all these kind of crazy suggestions. And it's it's very easy to go and throw out ideas like, let's go and have you know, social housing for all, or let's have it as a human right, you know, enshrined in the uh, constitution and things like that. The problem with this is that they are not fundable. It has to be a realistic solution so that it can actually be funded. If you go and come up with these crazy ideas that, you know, great, you know, tick a box, it, it sounds great, but if it's not fundable, then you're really just, it's just a fantasy. And it's like anything, if you're trying to, you know, create success in your life or anything like that, dreaming is one thing, you have to have a plan to get there that is realistic. So let's let's have a look at what are the potential solutions, the achievable solutions that are possible. And that's what I'm gonna be looking at. Something that can be done without bankrupting the state. And so let us get into fixing the housing crisis. You are listening to Behind the Facade and I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. And here we are on episode number 137. And it is, um, before I get stuck into the episode, I want to do a quick shout out to a couple of people. Calum Kine, Niall Quinlan, Alison Clark and Geroid Kelly and those are guys that sent me a little message just that they are that they got something from I think it was uh, Spotify that said that I was either the top uh, listened to podcast in their top five or I was one of the top five so they sent they went to the trouble to send me a message letting me know and so I have to give them a quick shout out so thanks for that guys. Second of all, as you probably noticed, the, the Tash is gone. Movember is in the past and uh, come midnight on the 30th of November, that thing was shaved off and it feels good to be uh, clean shaven again. So if you're watching it in on the YouTube channel, you can see the clean shaven, as clean as a baby's bottom, as they used to say. 
So let's get into this housing crisis because it is, seems to be all that anyone is talking about these days. And it's really, it's just the topic of conversation everywhere, certainly here in the Irish market. And rather than jump on the bandwagon and add to the noise and come up with a whole load of you know problems and reasons why I think the government is crap and you know all this kind of stuff that's out there, let's actually instead analyze the problem uh, review how the it is being solved in other countries and then let us analyze whether any of these solutions that are being applied elsewhere could work in the Irish market or indeed maybe they are already happening in the Irish market and they just need to be scaled up. Um, I'm also going to you know, have a look at this in the context of the Irish property and construction market and just reflect on what are the two best options that I think if you take it if you look at it, things from a cost uh, versus impact um, ratio or analysis you know you can create an x and y axis and on one side is the cost easy to achieve hard to achieve from a cost point of view and then an impact point of view you know it's going to be a big impact and it'll make a big difference to very small difference. And so obviously it's finding the one that's in the quadrant that you get the best bang for your book and you get the biggest impact. And so that's what we're gonna have a quick look at towards the end of the episode. Now, to start with, I think we gotta go and analyze, you know, if you're gonna analyze a problem, you gotta go back a little bit. You gotta gonna turn back the clock and you gotta start thinking back to how has it been done in the past? And if we go back and look at the last, say, 50 to 100 years, there is a reason that I want to go back so far, and that is because the period from 1932 to 1956 is actually referred to as the golden age of Irish social housing. And according to uh, Professor Michelle Norris of UCD, she said that during this period, uh, 55% of all housing stock, of all new houses built, was actually for social housing. And it was all provided for by the state. Now, in actual numbers terms, that's 112,144 homes that were built in that 30-year period. And that percentage of households that were in social housing at the time was way up at 18.6%. So the 55% uh, of accommodation that was social housing that declined to 31% of all social hu- of all housing stock 31% of it was social housing by the 1960s now that continued to decline and by the 2000s that figure was down to just 10.8% and by 2016 the beginning of the kind of crisis that we're in now this had dropped as low as 9.7 so from 55% back in the 1950s to 9.7% today. And I'm sure, like, I don't know what the figure is as of 2022, but I'm sure it is not looking very, very good. So how did we go from 55% to 10% in le- in the space of about sort of 70 years, we'll say? First, we got to acknowledge that 112,144 new homes built during that 30-year period that represents just 3% or sorry 3 years of the actual output required today to service the the needs of the state so you know we had a much lower population at the time local authorities delivered 
owned and managed all housing back then. And it should be noted that this model, even though it was kind of common in the UK, it was not actually typical of social housing provision in yet Western Europe at the time. Now, what you've got to remember is, if we think about the UK, post-World War II, there was total devastation across the UK. Like, they had been bombed by Germany, and, um, like, huge swathes of the cities across the UK were terribly damaged. And so what the, the government decided they had to do was they had to intervene in the market, and they had to embark on this massive post-war effort to rebuild the cities and all of the housing that had been lost. And the reason it had to be done was, first of all, you had... Tens of thousands, if not millions of soldiers returning from war that had been gone for years and they had gone, they had left homes that were now bombed out of it and were destroyed. And they were also after the war, there was this huge post-war baby boom. And so there was a need to actually accommodate all of the uh, the babies that were going to be the families that were going to be born. And so this was not a problem that Ireland suffered at the time. And in fact, we were suffering with population decline at the time that had gone all the way back to the, to the 1850s when the big famine came along. However, if you look to the rest of Western Europe, social housing was typically provided by independent non-profit um, organizations, such as in Denmark, you had cooperatives in the Netherlands and in Austria, you had these housing associations and you had government, you had basically quasi-government municipal housing companies set up in France and Sweden. Now, surprisingly, Germany, which is, you know, the efficiency, um, the, the most efficient state, you might say, in, the, uh, in Europe or certainly the richest, all, almost all of their social housing was provided by the private sector. And so that is interesting to see. Now, anyone old enough, you know, pointing the, the, the mirror at myself or the, the finger at myself straight away, um, now that I'm in my 50s, I remember the 1980s. And anyone who's old enough to remember that period of time will remember the sense of entitlement um, and the kind of just the sheer wastage that went on in the public center sector at the time. As a result, now, just to give you an example uh, I remember I had a friend whose wife worked in Aer Lingus and he was telling me back in the 1980s like that it was absolutely ridiculous. The unions had such control over all of the state companies that um, the wastage and the kind of entitlement was ridiculous. I can remember him telling me there was these lines of demarcation where your job was very, very specific and they had three types of air hostess working inside the air inside the airline cabin during a flight to America and the people working in the economy section were had different roles to the people working in the business section and somebody that had to you know the section that whenever the flight took off they would pull these curtains and the curtains would you know demarcate business class versus the kind of economy class and not any, it was actually allocated a specific person in the cabin was, it was their job to pull that curtain and you couldn't do it if 
you were not one of those people that was allocated this role. Like that's what it was kind of down to. And this was in order to kind of keep the unions happy and make sure that people got pay rises based on their level of seniority and pulling that curtain, oh, you're more senior, so you're going to get more pay. Now, along came Ryanair and obviously ripped the industry asunder with its real no frills. And sure enough, Aer Lingus ended up, you know, nearly going bankrupt at the time because it could not compete with that cost model when 2000, uh, when, you know, after 2001, when the 9-11 attacks happened, I can remember it was a crisis and Aer Lingus almost collapsed. They were losing something like 90 million a year and Ryanair was making a profit while Aer Lingus was losing 90 million. That was 90 million in salaries going on this kind of wastage. So that is the exact same thing was going on in local authorities. And I can remember, I was studying architecture back in the 90s, and I can remember a friend of mine got a job in the OPW at the time, and he and I can remember asking him, you know, what, how's, how's the job going? It was a summer job. And he said that it's really, it's really annoying, it's really wasteful. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? And he said that the, the guys that were sitting in the, in the office, the drawing office that he was working in, they were sitting there and they had nixers on their drawing boards and they were working on their own private client work. And then whenever the supervisor came along, they would pull the sheet of paper over the top of their desk and they would mask it with what they were supposed to be working on. And so it was just nixer, like these guys were working on their own personal nixers constantly. And the only time they did the work was when there was somebody coming in to check on them. And so you can understand what that led to, complete wastage. And um, you had also, on the building side of it, you had people taking the products that were meant for, you know, housing projects and taking them home. And so you'd end up with, you know, blocks and bricks and lintels and whatever you needed, timber and stuff. You could build an extension to your house and you didn't have to pay for any of the materials. You would just get that all complements of the state. So super problematic tons of room for corruption, tons of room for looking after your mates. And this obviously was endemic right up and down the entire organization. So from the laborers that were taking the stuff home to the managers above them, to the guys that were in charge of the of the organizations, they were probably, you know, taking care of mates and you would have state contracts awarded to your friends and your pals. And there was this whole golden circle. So most of that was kind of you know, ironed out over the 90s and the 2000s when they started to kind of come down on corruption. But really where it came to the end was in 2008 when the crash, the financial crash, almost bankrupted the state. And you had the, the, the austerity that was brought in when the IMF stepped in and all this. And when that happened, the government, like all of the central funding for local authorities and stuff was stripped away and removed and there was hiring caps put on and all sorts of stuff and after years of austerity you know things were basically shaved and you ended up getting it right back down to a kind of small organization now it was also a massive problem in the private sector um what the recession was i should say the for one in every two jobs in construction was lost after 2008. So you had the uh, what was happening in the public sector, all of the, you know, cuts, cost cuts and everything like that. A lot of people, they didn't lose their job, but the nixers and all that kind of stuff, the, the gravy train came to an end. And in addition to that, then the construction sector over on the private side was 
really going through hell. And so as a result, the entire industry got hollowed out and you had from building 85,000 housing units in 2007, that fell to something like 12,000 in 2012. So in that space of about five years, our housing capacity dropped from 85 to 12. So basically one eighth. Today we need 50,000 housing units just to get back to meeting the current demand. Now, it's actually, we don't need 50,000 a year, but what we have at the moment is a demand for about 35,000 a year. And what we need to do is because supply has been so bad and there's such an acute shortage, we need to build about 50 to 60,000 a year just to catch up and to kind of get beyond the current level of demand. That is the only way that we would reach a kind of a balance point. Now, it's highly unlikely that we will ever achieve this. And I, when I say ever, it sounds very sort of absolutist, but the reality is, is that we don't have the capacity to build this number of homes. And we cannot have this capacity because try to build anything more than what we currently are building and you're running into labor shortages and the biggest problem we have is trying to find labor for the country so many people moved abroad in 2008 when when one in every two jobs was lost tens of thousands of people left the sector moved abroad whether it's irish people moving to canada or australia or wherever it was but you also had a huge number of people that were eastern europeans that had moved to ireland for the boom and then moved back home after the boom came to an end so tens of thousands of laborers lost to the market and how do you bring that back now we have this double-edged sword of the fact that we're, we're short of all these laborers but where do we where do we house them if they came into the market? We would have work for 10 or 20,000 laborers in the morning if we could get them accommodation in the country. The problem is the housing crisis means that there is no accommodation to put those people up. And in addition to that, we have the issue of Ukrainian refugees now in tens of thousands of them. I think 67,000 maybe now or something like that. And, and it's you know perfectly right that we are housing Ukrainian refugees, but that is making the matter even worse. We now have far less accommodation for laborers to come over and help us fix the problem. So what are we going to do? Now, it has been suggested to me, somebody said that, you know, you could put them up in the developments, but uh, that remains to be seen. I mean, you're talking about prefabricated uh, sort of villages and stuff. And I know if you go and look at the World Cup in Qatar at the moment, they are being slated for these kind of labor camps that that are being that have been you know used to build the olympic villages and all that stuff or the uh, the world cup um sta stadiums in qatar so are we look you know is the suggestion that we go and start building labor camps to put these people up to build out this stuff maybe it would be a solution but it's likely to create a lot of controversy and um, and, that, and that's the problem that we have here is that there is no solution that is going to tick the box for everybody. You're going to have some people saying that this is slave labor or that we're, you know, it's 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 improper to put people up in these housing conditions. And at the same time, if you don't fix it, we're going to continue to have this problem. Now, in order to solve the housing crisis at the moment, um, we have to look at, you know, what has been done by the government to date. And from 2016 to 2021, in that six-year period, 9.9 .9 billion euro has been spent on fixing housing and homelessness. Now, unfortunately, it has not worked clearly. 
But at the time that the plan was announced back in 2016, it was announced that we would be building 147,000 homes over that six year period. Now that works out at 25,000 homes a year on average over six years. And if we'd managed to achieve that, that would have been something. But the closest we got in any one year was 20,514, and that was in the year of 2020. And that was the year that we had to play catch up after the pandemic. So there was this huge glut of catch up done. Um, the average over that six year period was actually only 17,000 units. And so today, when you accumulate all of those, that shortage over that period of time, it means that 30,000 homes were not built of the 147,000. So that, that again is just adding to the problem because in that period we have had 35,000 every single year. That has been the demand. So we've been building 17,000, but we've had 35,000 of a need. And so we keep on getting further and further and further into the red in this regard. So let's have a look at some of the solutions. And solutions, I mean, how is it working in other countries? If you have a look at other EU or we'll say European countries, what, uh, how are they solving the social housing aspect as a percentage of the total housing stock? In the Netherlands, the total housing stock, 33% um, of total housing stock is social housing. And that equates to 75% of the rental stock. So the Netherlands is head and shoulders above everyone else in, and that's kind of typical. Whenever you talk about the Netherlands, it's always the efficiency of the Dutch and stuff like that. Austria is close second. And in Austria's case, they have a total of 22% of their entire housing stock is social housing. And that equates to 56% of their entire rental market. If you look at France and the UK are close to, are closely kind of uh, linked, that's 17% of the total stock is social uh, housing in both France and the UK. In France, that represents 44% of the total rental stock, and in the UK, it represents 49%. Now, then it starts to fall off. We got Finland are at 16% of the total housing stock. Uh, and 53% of the rental stock. But when you look at Ireland, we are way down at 9%, um, and only 32% of our rental stock is social housing. So that there is the problem. Now, what's very strange, though, is when you look at Germany, and I mentioned earlier, I, I highlighted the fact that German Germany, all the social housing is done by the private sector in Germany. And... Germany, only 3% of the total stock of housing is social housing in Germany. And that represents only 7% of the total rental market. So it is interesting that with such low figures that they do not seem to have a housing crisis. Or certainly it's not hitting the headlines the way we are hearing about it. Because I recently saw the Irish housing crisis is even being referred to in Sky News now, uh, which is obviously... UK kind of focus. So what are Netherlands and Austria doing and how can the governments, you know, how are they supporting the housing sector? So let's have a look at some of the, the methods that they are using in order to do this. So having a look at the way governments provide support to the various housing um, schemes and, and social housing kind of sectors. 
First of all, you have capital grants. Now, capital grants, this is in decline, um, but we'll have a look at that now in a minute. The next is subsidized lending to housing providers. Now, in Austria, as an example, they provide public loans at long-term uh, interest rates of between zero and 2%. And that's, this typically covers about 35% of the cost of the development. So it's interesting that they do that, but they only provide it to non-profit housing associations. And this does seem like an interesting uh, method. Three is the provision of land at highly discounted um, prices. And this is only given to social housing providers. The next, uh, number four, is fiscal benefit. Now, this is something that we are quite used to in the Irish market, and that is in the form of tax allowances. And I'm going to go into a little bit of that. And then finally, we have housing allowances. And housing allowances, um, we're already quite familiar with that as well. We have the HAP payment here in the Irish market. So well, which of these would work or which of them are already currently being used in the market and which ones do we really, it's, it's not so much a matter of whether we should use them or not, it's whether we should be scaling them or whether we should, uh, if we aren't scaling them, why are they not being scaled? Is it a matter of, of affordability or is there some other disincentive as to why it's not being done? Taking the first one, capital grants. These um, were removed in the Irish market back in 2008 with all the waste I mentioned inside of the local authorities and civil servants in general. And it was stripped away during austerity. Now, a lot, there's a lot to be said for doing this because if you consider the amount of cost overruns that have taken place on any kind of big public spend projects. And just to give you an example, the National Broadband Plan, which has been rolled out over the last number of years, it is currently 440% over budget. The National Children's Hospital, which is under construction, and it's going to be a huge project, obviously, but that is currently running at 135% over budget. Phase one of the Lewis, uh, which is the tram line that they built here in Dublin back in the in the 2000s, that the fa first phase of it, which was from Sandyford to uh, Stevens Green, that cost 289 or sorry, 289 percent over budget that was delivered at. And then something close to me right now is the port tunnel. As I'm here in East Point, the port tunnel is right outside my window. The port tunnel, when it was built, came in at 160% its original uh, expenditure or the original budget. So you can imagine when you're talking about spending billions, if you're talking about 400% you know, over budget or 290% over budget, you can imagine how it becomes very, very difficult to actually finance this because you sort of say, how much do we need to spend in the Irish economy to fix this problem. We spent, in six years, we spent 10 billion on this problem. And looking forward, we need, by the 2030, we need to add something like 400,000 homes. How are we going to deliver that if 140,000 homes has, was going to, which was the plan from 2016 to 2021, in that six year period, 147,000 homes was planned and it cost 10 billion. So how much is it going to do to, to cost to build 400,000? And if you're talking about going over budget by, you know, 200, 300%, you could be looking at 100 billion being spent on this. And 
going over massively over budget who pays for that where does it get funded out of this is one of the reasons why i can't really see that being a solution unless they find ways of bringing the you know the, the budgets under control and really the only way to do that is by involving the private sector because there are efficiencies in the private sector now there are definitely people out there and, and organizations that do abuse this because i've heard of situations where local authorities are building housing projects and i think they signed a contract for six million I heard about this particular scheme. I'm not going to mention names, but I heard a, the scheme was going to come in at six million and the contractor that won the contract got paid six million, but then put in for claims for, you know, extras. And the claims, I think, came in at something like 20 million. So they actually got paid six and they got an additional 20 on top of that in overspend. And so you can see how these need to be controlled. It, it seems that there are certain organizations that are kind of kitted out to actually abuse the system, but the private sector does seem to be the, sec the, the way to get the efficiencies that you need um, and also to get the program delivery on program. But it's, you can see how politically that is very, very difficult to stomach because it means private companies getting billions. And so it's very, very difficult to kind of see how capital grants really can work for any side of that, whether it's private or public. Now, the second one, the subsidized lending, that does seem like a much, much more workable solution. And the reason I say that is because it's already been done here in Ireland at the moment. And back in December 2018, the government established the Home Building Finance Ireland and that is the HBFI, which is owned 100% by the Minister for Finance. And it, the idea is, and I'm going to use exactly what they say on the website, they say that they, they were established to provide funding at market rates for commercially viable residential developments in the state. Now, the first thing I like, you know, obviously it's great that we have these, you know, things that have worked in places like Austria being adopted here. The problem is when I see things like the word market rates, you have to wonder because that does not sound like subsidized lending to me. And if you're able to go zero to two percent in Austria and then you're talking about market rates here in the Irish economy, what are we talking about in terms of rates like market rate would be, you know, 5% or something like that. So it is not going to help with um, and also commercially viable projects. Commercially viable means it's supposed to be profitable. But what about non-profit organizations? And um, looking at the way the HBFI works, they actually have multiple different categories of that they support. They support schemes under 10 units, schemes over 10 units, apartment developments, social and affording de affordable developments, and also green funding. The next one to look at is land provision at discounted rates. And uh, this is something that really could work because I remember reading a few years ago, it said that Dublin City Council, I think it is, sitting on something like 140 hectares of land um, in the Dublin area. Uh, now, I could be wrong with that figure, but I can remember thinking, wow, that is hundreds of acres of land. And if they could provide that, if they could hand that over to housing developments, then it would obviously be great. 
the problem is it's you know it always sounds great in principle to do this but as always there's a lot of controversy that surrounds these decisions and i know that you know as soon as a piece of land is handed over to somebody to develop suddenly it's like why was this person awarded that contract why who decided it why did they decide it what was the criteria um, why is the local authority itself not building the apartments or the houses on it? And what is being built? Is it acceptable to the local community? Is it, is the densities right? Like, there's just so much controversy. And basically, the local councillors, if they put their head up above the parapet, they end up getting shot down. And so this is one of the big issues that we have um, with this particular type of government support. Now, the one that I mentioned earlier is very familiar to the Irish market, is fiscal benefit support. And that is, back in the 2000s, we had this in, in huge uh, usage in, across the country. We had tax breaks, tax allowances, and basically, I can remember Section 23, I think it was, was the big one. And you could go and buy an apartment and you would get tax breaks on the amount that you spent on the apartment. You could take deduct from your tax on your personal income. Now, this was a great thing. It was used to for urban regeneration. I know that, um, that my own family, we actually built uh, a car park building under this scheme. And I can't remember the name of the scheme. It was like section, I think it might have been section 23 as well. There was section 37 as well. But there was, it was basically urban regeneration. And if you were to build this thing, you could get double rent relief. And there was lots of different thing, uh, different things that made this. Now, the problem is, is that the boom came along and the boom was, in, a, in many ways, the boom was fueled by these tax allowances. And it nowadays when you look at this as a as a possible solution it's very very politically on uh, distasteful is is basically because in the eyes of the political in the eyes of the electorate the politicians are basically awarding the the developers because the developers are the ones that benefit um, if you make something a tax allowance the developer sells it at a profit and they make this profit and the purchasers are getting tax breaks on that. And so who's ultimately benefiting? Um, these, you know, the, the, the developer is effectively benefiting from the public purse. And that is considered to be distasteful nowadays after the 2008 crash. But I think we have to kind of get off that way of thinking because I think it is holding us back in terms of the delivery. You, you've got to incentivize the private sector into kind of jumping into this stuff. And you can be sure if we were able to make more money through these kind of tax breaks, then people will find a way and you'd start to find that the economy is, um, is able to facilitate greater capacity because people would find solutions, whereas at the moment, perhaps it's not economically viable to actually find those solutions. And finally, we're into the housing allowances. And that is something that's already quite big in the state here. We have what's known as the HAP here in Ireland. And that is the housing, uh, what is it? Housing uh, allowance payment or housing accommodation payment or whatever it is. HAP, usually the government, what they'll do is if you're a person uh, that's, that's on a housing list or one of these things, you're basically provided with subsidized rent. So... You find a landlord, the landlord is charging you, 
you know, a thousand a month, whatever it is, you go to the government and the government will pay 950 of that and you've got to top out up which are 50. That's more or less, I haven't done this personally, so, but I have spoken to various friends who are doing this. Now, the issue is for this is, people are criticizing this because they ask, is this representing good value for money? Because all of the billions that has been spent on this particular scheme, it goes out in the form of payments to private landlords. There is no asset left over, essentially, because you're giving billions over, uh, the tenant lives in the house, the landlord gets paid from the government, and that's the end of it. In terms of if you were to actually take that money and to spend those billions on building social housing or building actual housing, you would have assets that are sitting there that are collecting rent that have a value. And so it wouldn't be money down the drain. But again, like all these things, you've got to find a way to solve the problem. And it's going to there's going to be multiple different options that you have to have. You have to have kind of an arsenal in order to fight this. And um, so look, let's bring this all to a conclusion, okay? I've been talking for long enough. Like, what do I think? I think that really all of those solutions have to be applied in some shape or form. I think definitely the lending is a, is a route because ultimately the government gets paid back the loan. It's not free money. And so that's a good thing. Subsidizing at a rate, I mean, the government is getting the money at a low rate anyway. So it should really be just taking the money at the rate that it gets it and lending it out at that rate. And that keeps the lid on the cost and give that to housing associations, nonprofits or whatever, and, you know, tweak that up when it's uh, for, for profit or whatever. In terms of other solutions that could deliver a bang for the book, I think we got to look at, you know, the low hanging fruit here. And again, this is, a, it seems to be that sometimes it's politically distasteful and that is what's motivating the decision not to do this. But there is most definitely the residential landlord is being targeted as some kind of enemy of the estate. And if you speak to anyone who is renting accommodation in the country, they'll complain about how they are being disincentivized to, uh, to, be, to, be, to remain a landlord and to rent the property out. First of all, you've got the tax treatment. Second of all, you've got all of these rules around the rates. You've got rate you've got caps on the amount that you can increase your rent. And these can be often very, very unfair. Now, the idea of a rental cap makes sense in some places because landlords, unscrupulous landlords, were lobbing, lobbing on 10 and 15% increases every year. They've now capped that. The problem is, though, is that somebody who has an artificially low rate cannot catch up to the market rate unless they keep the property vacant for two years and that is obviously a very very costly exercise the other option i think is if you were to uh, increase the size of the property by 25 percent or if you go up by something like seven points in the energy rating system those are the three criteria in which you can bring it up to the market rate. But below that, if you, say for example, you were renting to some you know, elderly person and you were giving them a deal at 500 a month and the market rate is 1,500 a month and you were a nice person, out that person moves or perhaps they've died of old age or whatever and you decide, okay, now it's time to gonna get the full market rent for my property. You're not allowed to do that. 500 is what you're getting. So you have to increase incrementally off of that 500 a month. So the only option for you is to go and 
close down the property, take it off the market. Two years later, you can apply for the higher rate. And so you can see how it's highly disincentivizing for landlords. And so a lot of people, rather than be faced with that, they can either break the rules and run the risk of being caught by the residential tenancy board and maybe being fined, or they just say, you know what, I'm going to just sell the property, I'm going to just put the money in my pocket, and that's it. And there's another rental property gone from the market. Now, lots of landlords are keen to go out there and build a long-term passive income. I know I'm working with a number of private clients in my coaching business, and that's what they all want to do. And so these are people who want to help solve the rental housing crisis. It is an absolute crisis at the moment. I think I mentioned before, I heard a property recently, 600 inquiries in one hour for a two-bedroom apartment. And... Um, it's just, it's an absolute crisis out there at the moment. It's a total nightmare. People are unable to move out of property. Like they're being told that they would like to, you know, the landlord tells them, we'd like you to move out because we're getting, um, we're going to renovate the house or something. They can't move out because they can't find somewhere to move into. So the low hanging fruit might be to start incentivizing the residential uh, landlord again, as we used to back in the 2000s when you had thousands of residential landlords out there instead of relying on the huge big massive funds that have got you know 200 billion under management and they got, keep on building these huge massive blocks what's wrong with getting it back into the hands of the private residential landlord anyway the if you partner with people as opposed to fighting with them maybe it'll actually help solve the problem anyway i would love to hear what you guys think of it this is kind of a controversial topic a lot of people have very very different views on it i know there's a there's a poll out there circulating they're talking about making housing a, a, a you know a, a human right under the constitution and uh, and i know um one of my fellow youtubers uh Shane Fleming he mentioned it recently and he had some good points on that but what solutions do you guys want to hear more about which ones do you think would work which ones do you think are definitely not going to work leave your comment below and let me know and I will see you guys in the next one take care folks Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you found this episode useful or if you enjoyed it in any way, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes if you're listening on the audio version. Uh, or indeed, if you're watching now on YouTube, I'd be very grateful if you would hit the old uh, like thumbs up button down there and uh, subscribe to the channel. If you have any questions that you would like to me to cover in future episodes, please leave a comment down below or indeed drop me a line um, via social media. My name on social media is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can also join my uh, Facebook group. I have a Facebook group called Behind the Facade Community. And you can also stay in touch with all the various stuff that I'm working on via my uh, blog. My, my website is gavinjgallagher.com. And when you're in there, sign up to the newsletter by joining my tribe and you will get a weekly email with the latest uh, content coming out from myself. And so I hope you guys are great and I'll see you next time.